welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. today with Dr. Eric Roselli, who is the director of the Aortic Center and staff surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm Melissa Levac, chief resident in cardiothoracic surgery at the clinic, and today we'll be interviewing Dr. Roselli on the topic of aortic arch aneurysms. Dr. Roselli, good morning. Hi, Melissa. Good morning. Having spent time in your aortic clinic, I know you are frequently referred patients with ascending and arch aneurysms and often follow these patients over time. What is your approach to these patients, and what kind of workup and imaging do you recommend in order to evaluate them for surgery? That's a good broad question, um, and it really is dependent upon many factors. So what we're seeing is an increasing number of patients who are presenting with incidentally found aneurysms for a couple of reasons. Number one is when a patient shows up in the ER for a lot of things, it's... uh, become inexpensive for them to get some cross-sectional imaging, namely a CAT scan. And uh, so often they're found in the setting of workup for some other thing. Um, And there's probably an increased awareness about the importance of thoracic aortic aneurysms. I don't think the disease has actually become more prevalent. It's just we're we're better at diagnosing it. The problem with aneurysm is uh, when someone hears the word, they're frightened by it. And so my approach is, I guess I have to be philosophical about a little bit, is number one, uh, our main role is to reassure patients and educate them. That's our first job, is to educate them about the problem they have, because they often come in scared to death. Uh, And so, um, you know, we base a lot of our decisions on the size of the aorta when we see somebody, because that's the one objective thing that we can measure. And so we know that in general, when we see a patient with an ascending aortic aneurysm, or we should really say proximal aneurysm, so that includes the root and the arch as well, that a, as an absolute number, when we would definitely consider intervening, uh, most of the guidelines would suggest five and a half centimeters as sort of an important number to sort of pull the trigger. Of course, every time you see a patient, you're not just treating a, an image and a measurement that you're taking. Um, you have to understand uh, a couple of uh, important things about uh, that decision-making process. And it always comes down to balancing risks and benefits. And so um, we know that we can fix ascending aortic aneurysms really safely in folks for the most part, uh, even people who carry some uh, morbidities. And if we have to address it during a multi-component operation, uh, we've recently published data looking at our databases uh, analyzing that question. Um, but then we have to ask the question about what kind of benefit are we going to get for folks. And so uh, if a patient's young uh, and we can prevent them from dying of aortic rupture or dissection, then I think we have great benefit. Uh, so the young patients that we often see with ascending aneurysms are patients with bicuspid valves. A lot of patients uh, are also referred to the clinic because they've had an incidental finding of an aneurysm because a family member has had that. Uh, or has a bicuspid valve, and they've been instructed for their family members to be screened for that. That also adds that additional risk factor. So not only are we looking at the size of the aorta, but we're looking in the context of the cause of the aneurysm. If we think it's an aneurysm that's uh, associated with bicuspid valve disease or a family history of rupture or dissection of an aneurysm, then we lower the threshold when when to operate. 
And so we might consider operating around five centimeters. We also, though, have to look at it in the context of the patient's body size. And although there have been efforts to index it to body surface area in our practice, uh, we don't think that makes a lot of sense because body surface area is calculated based not just on height but weight. And if you use an index like that, you can gain weight to lower your risk, which makes absolutely no sense. And so uh, we like to index uh, decision-making processes based on patient's height, especially important, for example, in a patient with Turner syndrome who might have an enlarged aorta and only be 4 foot 10. And when you look at that CAT scan and their 4.8 centimeter aorta looks like it fills half their chest, uh, it's kind of hard to say, like, we should leave it alone. Uh, because the one thing that we can't measure is wall thickness or uh, what's going on really at the micro sort of biological level uh, with regards to what kind of stresses and strains are on aorta at this time. Maybe one day in the near future we'll have other tools to help us in the decision-making process. Um, so those are some of my thoughts about what we think about when we first see a patient. Let's take a scenario in which you have a 51-year-old male with a bicuspid aortic valve normally functioning with a proximal uh, aneurysm, which tapers to normal caliber around the mid-arch. Uh, he presents to you for operative intervention, and uh, you decide to operate. Uh, what is your operative strategy in a patient like this? How big is the aneurysm? 5.2 centimeters. Okay. So um, in a young patient, um, especially with a well-functioning bicuspid aortic valve, uh, we want to save that living valve. So although we know that mechanical valve prosthesis can be durable for a long time, um, you know, there are risks associated with being on lifelong anticoagulation, and no patient actually wants to choose that. And so you have to respect your patient's choice. Uh, on the flip side, uh, replacing a uh, a bicuspid valve that's already worked for five decades with a bioprosthesis, which we know has a lifespan of maybe a decade or two at best, also not a great option. And so we'll work hard to preserve that valve. The aneurysm that's 5.2 centimeters, we think may put that patient at increased risk for rupture or dissection, so we want to excise that. And if you say that this patient's aorta tapers down to a normal caliber in the mid-arch, that net may be a, a root phenotype kind of aneurysm. Um, we think that folks with a root phenotype where the, where the bicuspid-associated aneurysm is involving the root may put them at higher risk. So I would operate on that patient, and the operation uh, that I would likely recommend would be a valve-preserving root replacement. That uh, These patients often have annual aortic ectasia, and so the valve reimplantation procedure, which is a modification of a David's procedure, uh, will do that. It'll stabilize the annulus, and I'll reduce that annulus down to a normal range, usually 24, 25 millimeters, which we'll reduce over a Hagar dilator. We replace all of the aortic root and reimplant the coronary arteries, and then reimplant the valve. And when I reimplant a valve in a patient with bicuspid valve that's otherwise, uh, where the leaflets are otherwise healthy looking, uh, other than the fact that they're bicuspid, I try to uh, put that valve into what we think is an ideal mechanical environment. That is one where the commissures are oriented 180 degrees opposite each other. We have a long coaptation zone. Uh, and we're careful not to undersize those valves because they often do like to, you know, 
live in a slightly more generous aortic root. And so typically those, uh, the prosthesis we choose is about 30 millimeters or 32 millimeters, depending on, you know, our assessment in the operating room. And I'll replace that aorta um, uh, all the way up to where I think it looks totally normal. Um, in some of these patients, uh, as you said, it looks like it tapers down to normal size in the mid-ascending aorta. But then, um, you know, we may be able to do that operation with a cross clamp. Uh, if not, we'll have a little threshold to do selective brain perfusion and add a hemiarch. Uh, let's change the scenario. Uh, what would be your operative strategy in a robust 77-year-old female who you have followed extensively who has um, broad aortic aneurysmal disease extending throughout the ascending arch and descending? So um, in, in a lady that you describe, again, you know, we're, we're talking hypothetical situations, but um, if the uh, if the aorta is big enough to warrant intervention, so you know five and a half six centimeters, or I've been watching her for a while and now I've seen it grow, um, uh, and she's otherwise healthy, I think we need to still be aggressive about it because a 77 year old lady who otherwise doesn't have significant comorbidities has a good chance to live another decade or more, and so I think we have to do uh, you know a, a complete operation. Interestingly, what I've noticed is that in these uh, patients who present, like you've described, a, a woman in her eighth decade uh, who doesn't have significant atherosclerotic disease or coronary disease and has dilatation of her both her proximal and her uh, and even a, even a mildly moderately dilated descending aorta often carries a diagnosis of giant cell aortitis. And what we've learned about these giant cell aortitis patients is that they can have a pretty aggressive uh, uh, disease. So although our main focus may be treating an ascending aneurysm that's five or six centimeters, we're doing, a, we're doing them a disservice if we don't pay attention to the four and a half or, 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 or so centimeter aorta and the descending aorta. And so we'll have a low threshold in those patients to extend the repair through the arch and either do a, an elephant trunk operation or a frozen elephant trunk operation or even an arch repair where uh, we create a platform for a potential endovascular solution later on to deal with that descending aorta. And what I mean by that is we'll do selective brain perfusion, we'll bypass the innominate and left common carotid arteries and leave you know, a three or four or longer segment of graft material between where those carotids are, are originating so that we can uh, treat that later on. We can always deal with the left subclavian artery in some way that's extrathoracic or, or, or endovascularly. One of my favorite operations to do with you is the frozen elephant trunk. Can you describe your technique for this? Sure. So um, that technique's evolved over time. Um, it's, uh, um, and we probably have a couple of different ways that you do it now. Uh, the way that I perform that operation is with um, what we call a, a branched modified frozen elephant trunk. Um, and in acute settings or in a patient who's, you know, uh, a lot older where we're worried about the risk and maybe they have sparing of their arch but descending and ascending disease, uh, we'll try to do that as a single anastomosis kind of operation. So um, uh, in somebody who's got really complex disease in the arch, we might do multiple anastomoses and deconstruct the whole thing. Uh, but we still try and keep it as simple as possible. And so, um, uh, but also as safe as possible. And so always use selective anti-grade brain perfusion. There's always a way to do it. 
if it's a primary operation, I'll do that selective brain perfusion with direct cannulation of the carotids. If it's a redo, we'll use the axillary artery as our inflow. Uh, during the circulatory arrest period, uh, one of the ways that we've learned to keep this operation safe, and, and, and what I mean by that is to keep it dry, because we know that bleeding is one of the real serious Achilles heels of complex heart surgery, is to keep the anastomosis in your face. And so we make that anastom the main aortic anastomosis more proximal, which often means between the left common carotid or left subclavian artery or even more proximal. So for an acute dissection, I'll do a single anastomosis where we put the stent graft into the open aorta. And currently what we're doing is burning a hole in the stent graft and then putting another stent inside of the left subclavian artery to deal with it from within. And then we'll suture the device to the transected aorta. For an acute dissection, we'll suture to the transected aorta and leave the anominate left common carotid sort of as a little peninsula included in the main anastomosis to the graft. And someone with chronic disease that's a more elective case, we might uh, disassemble both the anominate left common carotid and reimplant them with separate grafts as well. But uh, still, the main aortic anastomosis is, is a little more proximal in the aorta that avoids the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Uh, makes hemostasis or maintaining hemostasis a lot simpler uh, and still allows us uh, to address the left subclavian artery with that internal stent stenting technique. The last question I have for you is how do you follow these patients postoperatively? And that's a great question. I'm glad you asked because I think that that's the, one of the most important things to understand is that uh, aortic surgery is palliative. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, we meet them when they're in the end stages of degeneration with an aneurysm related to you know, autoimmune disease or some underlying thing, you know, they're some genetically triggered cause they were born with. Uh, aneurysm is the presentation of a disease that's been going on for a long time. Same is true of dissection. You know, the dissection is probably the manifestation of a whole bunch of different medial diseases that occur in people over a period of years. And so, uh, one of the things that's important for us to understand is that after we fix a life-threatening problem is that the rest of the aorta that's left behind uh, is probably the same sort of substrate that got them to you in the first place and it requires attention and I don't think anybody uh, can uh, pay attention to the aorta the way that uh, a surgeon does or you know the person that intervenes upon it does and so I think we have a responsibility to follow these patients having said that uh, I see all my uh, patients who have aortic surgery, whether it be open or endovascular surgery. Uh, we get a baseline imaging study before they leave us, preferably with contrast if their kidneys can handle it. I see them again at about three months. The nice thing about three months is it's soon enough that you'll pick up on any major problems that may occur. Uh, and also they're far enough out that they're comfortable to make a trip to come back to see you. Uh, and they've gotten over most of their sort of mild aches and pains and they can pay attention to you to learn about sort of what you did and what your plan is going forward and they're more likely to follow with you. Then after that, if those imaging studies look great and everything we fixed looks stable and there's no other areas that we think are, you know, immediately vulnerable that need some attention sooner, then I'll see them at 12 months and I'll follow the patients annually. If they don't have any aorta that's really dilated that we're really worried about that we need to continue to follow annually kind of forever, what I mean by that is like if it's, you know, close to five centimeters, I might just follow them every year forever until it grows. Uh, but if it's in that sort of four centimeter-ish range, and we've seen it's been stable for three, four, five years, then I might stretch their imaging visits with me out to every other year. 
Um, if someone's left with a chronic dissection, I don't think they should ever go longer than two or three years without an imaging study and a visit, even if they've been stable for many years in a row. But I do like to see that they've been stable for a good four or five years in a row before we'll extend out their follow-up. And, uh, and this lifelong follow-up is true for really any aortic disease, not just aneurysms and dissections, but also true of people with congenital aortic disease, another growing area. Uh, so we see that people who have had coarctation repairs come back on average about 32 years later, often requiring something else to be done. So they need lifelong uh, follow-up as well. It might be a every five or 10 year imaging uh, study, but those are things that we're learning about the guidelines are loose, but I think the, the main uh, thing that most people would agree upon is that people with aortic disease do need some sort of lifelong follow-up with good imaging. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and expert opinion today, and it was always a pleasure talking with yeah, you. Yeah, thanks, Melissa. This is a great opportunity. Thank you.